0: Tomorrow is Independence Day. And in his sovereignty, God has guided us to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. This was not planned. This was not intended. In fact, if I had my druthers, I probably would have done something else. But let's read this, and if you're not quite sure why that's a little funny, you will after we read this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Isn't it interesting that today the Lord has brought us to this passage, and tomorrow we're going to celebrate our revolution. Now, to be clear, this is not going to be one of those let's dunk on America Bible studies, all right? I, as I've said many times, I'm a very patriotic person. I love my country. I love our history. And I really don't like it when people have bad things to say about America. So that's not what we're here to do. But I'm also not here to stand up and sing our praises because it's our special day. We are going to look at what the word of God has to say in this passage and apply it to our current situation as we always do. And the reason this is so difficult today is because whether you are pro or con, we all have very strong opinions about our country and about our government. I hope we can at least agree on that, that we have strong opinions on these matters. You know, sometimes, you know, for example, the book of Leviticus, we open up to the Day of Atonement. Yeah, everybody's pretty much ready to receive what the Word says because you don't have strong opinions one way or the other. But you open up to this passage or some of the things that Jesus said, and you've got pretty firm, fixed ideas about this stuff. And this is when it calls for humility. And so we're not going to oversimplify complex issues today. But I do want to emphasize an unambiguous biblical principle that needs to inform every opinion we hold and every position that we take in the world. In fact, rather than oversimplifying, probably what we're going to do is complicate things that we wish were a little more simple. Especially in days like these when everybody has something to say about politics. Remember from the Fiddler on the Roof play where she's talking to that one guy and he's, he's about to propose and he says, I, I see this as a political thing. And she goes, you think this is political? He goes, oh, yes, everything is political. And that was a joke. Well, now we're kind of living in that world or everything has been brought into that realm. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a firm gaze at the Bible that was written outside of our own context, which holds up a standard against our context and hopefully helps us be better people, better Christians and better citizens. So. Let's look at what Paul has to say here. He's really making a very simple argument here, and I'm going to lay it out for you in formal logic. Point number one Christians submit to God. That's pretty basic, right? Christians are in submission to God. Point number two God establishes government. There's no authority except that which comes from God. Therefore, number three, Christians submit to the government. That's pretty basic. We submit to God. God raised up the government. Therefore, if we are submitting to God, we're also submitting to the government. Now, I would hope that point one is assumed, and I don't need to spend a lot of time defending that to you, right? We submit to God because he's God and all the rest of it. Point number two, God establishes government. That's when we start to, okay, well, prove it to me. And then point three is when our flesh just really reacts. It's like, but I don't want to do that. But I want to to establish what the word is said. These words are really beyond misinterpretation. This isn't one of those passages where you look at it and go, now what is he saying? You know, we're in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and every now and then you're like, "What, what is he getting at exactly here? This one is, unfortunately for some of us, is pretty plain. That God establishes government and authority. We're going to start with point number two, because I'm assuming point number one. This is not the only place in the Bible where it tells us that God is the one that raises up kings and rulers and governors and presidents and nations and empires and cities. In John 19.11, Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, why aren't you saying anything? Don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus said in John 19.11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There is no authority except that which has been given from above. In fact, this verse is so close to what Paul says here that it could be speculated that this was one of those known sayings of Jesus that Paul adapted in his letter to the Romans, which is pretty cool. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So there's all these great books of why nations fail and guns, germs, and steel. Let me explain to you. And the Bible says it's the Lord that does these things. God is the one. Haven't you found that history is so much stranger than fiction? Like, really? That happened? It's like, yeah, that's what happened. And you say, I don't see how that could have happened. It's like, well, the Lord does what the Lord does. The psalmist knew that. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. So that tells us not only nations, not only governments, but individuals and the decisions of those individuals are in the hand of the Lord. The Bible is totally clear. All authority comes from God. And therefore, all authority carries his sovereign mandate. And you will notice that Paul does not qualify that statement Now, as we go on, we're going to get a full-formed biblical picture here, but let's learn this lesson first. If there is authority, especially official governmental authority, it comes from God and is carrying out His purposes. Now, we go, now, well, hold on a minute. We're a democracy. We vote. So, we pick our rulers. God doesn't pick our rulers. Well, did you know that there are a lot of different things that the Bible demonstrates are totally within God's authority, as if there's something outside of God's authority? God is like, oh, I really wanted this guy, but oh, what are, what are we going to do? Pennsylvania voted this way. I can't help it. <laughs> Psalm 2, verse 6 tells us that elections are in the hand of the Lord. The people say, let us cast off their rulers. And, let us, and God goes, I've set up my king. I'm laughing at you right now. Military coups are in the hand of the Lord. In 2 Samuel 16, David is run out of his, his kingdom by his son Absalom. And there's a man cursing David as he leaves. And they say, hey, you want me to go bring you his head, David? And David goes, no, nope, this is all from the Lord. I'm going to let it go. Judges 3.15, the story of Ehud and Eglon, Assassinations are in the hand of the Lord. Isaiah 45, verse 1, talking about raising up the Persians. Conquest and victories in war are in the sovereign hand of the Lord. 2 Samuel 7, he's talking to David about Solomon. Bloodlines are in the hands of the Lord. Matthew 23, the Pharisees stirred up the people, right? Jesus said they're in Moses' seat, so do what they say, but don't do what they do. Corruption is in the hand of the Lord too. Do you really think that God is so weak that things like that are going to thwart what he wants to do? Because the Bible gives us all these examples. I'll read this list again. Elections, military coups, assassinations, conquest, bloodlines, and corruption are all within God's sovereign plan and used to execute his sovereign plan. Therefore, when we come to a situation where things didn't follow the normal path, we don't say, oh no, God's plan has gone awry. The Lord has showed us, I'm able to work with all of these things. We used to call this providence. The capital P. It's a good word. It's one we ought to get reacquainted with. That God providentially is able to move the nations and the rulers and the officials. We need to stop treating every federal misstep as though God's wisdom has failed. Oh no, what are we going to do? God? What's God going to do? God goes, I, I still got this. I'm in, I was in charge of empires and kings where the sons used to assassinate their fathers. You don't think I can't handle your elections? This is important for us to know just before we move on that all authority comes from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So much for that not my president thing, huh? Now it used to be a, a, a bomb that we aimed at one side of the aisle but now we have to aim it at both sides of the aisle because we're all the same, aren't we? Well, I, that, that, I, I don't approve of how that election went. Okay, you can track that all the way back to Andrew Jackson if you want. John Quincy Adams. You don't, don't think God's in charge of all that? All authority has been instituted by God. I have every expectation that it does not matter who wins the next presidential election, half of the people will be saying it wasn't fair and it doesn't count. Right? Isn't that exactly what we, we've seen the last couple of years? And we're going to, same thing with the Supreme Court, right? It goes your way. Don't we live in a wonderful country with checks and balances? It doesn't go your way. It's like, we've got to change something. It's not right. The Lord is in control of all that. Now Paul tells us the primary purpose of raising up these institutions here too. And the purpose is social stability, which is something we have so much, we take so for granted, isn't it? We're we're arguing over perks usually even though everything is pretty stable he speaks specifically of the punishment of evil and the rewarding of good he says that the state bears the sword which is a pretty clear picture of the death penalty there and of in our case you might say bears the drone or bears the the gun they carry out god's wrath paul says in order to suppress man's worst tendencies god Set up the state. And this was first established in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 to Noah. Noah comes off the ark and God says, from now on, when a man sheds another man's blood, his blood shall be shed also. That was the institution of the death penalty specifically, but also of state authority. And this has not changed. Now, before we scoff and we say things like, well, government doesn't do anything, it would be better if we didn't have it. Okay, go to one of these countries where the government isn't stable and see how you like it. You know, I, you, can, you can, I used to be one of those edgy, kind of libertarian kind of teenagers, and then you go to Nepal. Oh, traffic laws are actually kind of important. <laughs> Food, drug, and administration policy. Yeah, okay, we shouldn't eat. You ever go to a country, don't eat anything unless it was in a sealed bottle from America. It's important for these things. right? I'm not even trying to make a statement about those things. I'm just saying, when there's a firm, established state, as God set it up, that is so things can be stable and function well. When I was in Nepal, we got pulled over by a police officer because he saw that there were Americans in the backseat and he wanted a bribe. And the taxi driver gave it to him and he says, oh yeah, I keep extra money right here for when I get pulled over for bribes. That's not stable, is it? So when God establishes the state, it's for that reason. Consider, I mean, we, you know, it's fun to make movies about it, but the lawlessness of the wild, wild west, right? It's like, oh, the state's not going to do it. We've got to ride out there and we've got to form a posse and we've got to make it happen. That's not the ideal way of handling things. And the law shows up and, okay, that doesn't really happen anymore. And if it does, it's an outlier and we're all shocked, right? This is why God raises up government and authority. That means embedded in that is the authority to raise taxes, The authority to raise armies, the authority to make laws, the authority to enforce laws. That these things are sovereignly given. That God has given every government and king and governor and mayor the authority and the commission to do that. Now, if you have a hard time with submitting to government, immediately, you're in a rush to claim, yeah, well, they don't do a good job. Okay, that's obvious, right? Every mandate that men are given from God, we don't do it very well, do we? I mean, look at you. I mean, men, you're supposed to be the leader and the authority in your house. Do you always do it perfectly? I bet you don't. You know, I'm the pastor of this church. I don't always do it perfectly. I never want to fool you into thinking that's the way it's supposed to be, because then you're going to get real upset when the inevitable happens. And God knows that too. Psalm 103 says the Lord shows compassion to us because he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust, right? He knows what's up in Washington. He knows what's up with those people. They've got a mandate from God, and God is also aware of the kind of people he's called to do that. And God is able to put the right people in there to establish his purposes. Now, let's take a minute and go on this little detour. What happens when someone God has raised up in authority fails to do what God has called them to do? Is God able to handle that in his sovereignty? Yeah. If we ever ask a question like that, the answer is yes, right? Is that within God's power to handle Yes, the answer is always yes. Let's look at this in Isaiah chapter 10. This is a prophecy given to Assyria. The Bible says over and over again, God raised up Assyria, the city of Nineveh and Tiglath-Pileser and all of these kings in order to judge the land and especially to judge Israel and Judah, to carry Israel away and to pen Judah into the city of Jerusalem until that was all that they had left. God specifically said this was going to happen and this is how I'm going to do it. But then in Isaiah chapter 10, he says this, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. The Lord is saying, I raised up Assyria to judge my people, but I didn't raise you up to do all this. All these things that they used to do. I mean, the Ninevites used to skin people alive. And they used to put hooks into people's skins and noses and lead them along for these ceremonial processions. They were a cruel, cruel people. And you see in the, in the book of Kings, when they show up to Jerusalem, they send this letter to the city. Your God can't even stop us. And that's when the Lord sent an angel and struck down 185,000 of them in one night. And their king was assassinated. And God sent judgment upon them. What am I pointing out here? That God raised up Assyria to do a specific job. They exceeded that sinfully. They went beyond it and did more than he expected. And God goes, so when I'm done with them, I'm coming back for you. This is important for us to remember. Consider Nebuchadnezzar who used to strut around Babylon and talk about how great he was. And God struck him with madness for seven years in Daniel chapter four. And he thought he was a cow and he ate grass and he slept out in the rain and his hair and his nails grew long. The Bible tells us what was God doing? He was humbling him. He says, yes, I gave you all this, but don't you sit there boasting in your heart. God is able to handle that. Someone's failure to fulfill God's mandate is not our business. Can I say that again? Someone else's failure to fulfill what God has called them to do is not our business. Because you really don't want somebody sticking their nose into your business when you fail to do what God has called you to do. How do you like it, mom, when you're at the grocery store and your kids are a little out of sorts and some mother cares to comment on how you're fulfilling the mandate to parent your children well? You like that? Thank you so much for being so, you're right, they are out of control, and I am a bad mother. And things were better in your day, and we millennials are terrible. Thank you for for saying all that. We don't like that, but what do we want to do when it comes to other people, when it comes to, especially people we're separated from, and you're never going to meet face to face, we become very free with our criticism. And here's the other point, as we kind of transition here. You might not know why God raised them up in the first place. They're doing a terrible job. Well, wait a minute. Do you even know what the job is? Look at this. The king of Assyria is trampling the northern kingdom. God's got to stop him. That is exactly what God had raised him up to do. So when they sacked the city of Samaria and carried away the captives, they were fulfilling God's mandate. God can raise up a ruler or a state or a president or a governor for any number of reasons. I'll give you five. This is the one we like, for peace and prosperity. I'm going to give you a great ruler so that everybody can have a great time. Solomon was this way. 1 Kings chapter 3, remember he says, I'm going to give you not just wisdom, but I'm going to give you the victory over your enemies. I'm going to bless you financially, all of that, right? And it was the golden age of Israel under Solomon. It was because of David and what he had done, and the temple was built, and the palace was incredible. Sometimes God raises up rulers like that. Maybe you've got a few in your mind And things were better under His administration, or better, under that king. That's the first reason. Number two, sometimes God raises up kings, rulers, and nations for affliction and for judgment. We don't like this one so much. Sometimes God raises up authorities to chastise the people, to bring his judgment and his wrath, just like God raised up the children of Israel to judge the Amorites in the land of Canaan. And God was patient for centuries, according to Genesis 15, 16. He said, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, so not yet. But when the time came, he raised them up. This means that sometimes God raises up bad rulers on purpose. So that things will go badly for the nation on purpose. Sometimes God raises up another nation to oppress a nation on purpose. This is totally biblical, is it not? We see this all throughout the Old Testament. God specifically raised up the Romans to be the ones that would work to crucify Jesus. So we need to be careful when you say, God couldn't possibly want this president or this justice or this mayor. It might be exactly what God wants. Read this through the book of Habakkuk. He says, Lord, when are you going to judge all the sin in my nation? He says, don't worry, I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and crush your people. You can't do that, Lord. I was thinking more like a revival. He goes, Well, maybe we'll get to that. (laughs) Peace and prosperity, affliction and judgment. Here's number three. Sometimes God has a very specific purpose in mind, and it's not some general thing for all the people. God has something, maybe in international relations, that He wants to accomplish. This is what the Lord did with Cyrus. Isaiah 45 tells us, God, well before Cyrus was ever born, God was raising up the Persian king Cyrus to be the one that would send the children of Israel back to their land. This is why I believe it was David Lloyd George, who is the prime minister of England, was called the second Cyrus, because he was the one who worked very, very hard after World War I and then pushed even after, after World War II, to get the Jews back into their land. Let me throw something really, I hope hope it's not too controversial, but it might be. I'll throw it out there. Would there ever have been enough international sympathy to give the Jews back the land of Israel were it not for Hitler and the Holocaust? Am I saying that was a good thing? No. I'm saying if that was what God wanted to do, people don't like Jews generally, do they? And like the, the sympathy like ended immediately. Like, wait a minute, how'd you get that land? You can't have that. It's like you all, the whole world said we should give it back to you and nobody wanted it. But now that we're in it, you don't want it? You want it back now? It's like, well, look at all the horrible things that were done. So is it possible that God raised up a nation like that in order to make the rest of the nations cool off for a little bit in time to restore his people? How about that? Is it possible that the United States was raised up for the sole purpose of accomplishing that? I don't know. I'm not even going to speculate on that because our story is still being unfolded. I'm saying God has his purposes. Sometimes you see something amazing happen in history and then it just flames out immediately. Perhaps that's because they accomplished their purpose that God had for them. Number four, this one is less fun. Permission and withdrawal. Sometimes God gives the people exactly what they want. And Romans chapter one told us that that is one of God's primary ways of judging people. Second Thessalonians tells us that's going to be the primary judgment of the tribulation is God withdrawing his hand and letting things go. Consider Saul in first Samuel eight. They demanded a king and Samuel comes crying out to the Lord and God goes, I know I they've been like this ever since I took them out of Egypt. But fine, give them a king. Let them get their belly full of their kind of king and then I'll give them one of mine. So the reign of Saul, which was not a great time for Israel, the Philistines were ravaging the land and everything else, and the king was paranoid and killing people and all that, right? God gave them what they wanted. And if you read the story, funnily enough, that what they wanted was somebody tall. Like you read this, wow, Saul, he's he's so much taller than everybody else. He must make a great king. (laughs) Which adds a little bit of flavor to the Goliath story, doesn't it? Because we picked Saul, he's so big, and he's so much, and then here comes Goliath. And then who does God use? The, the kid, right? He's trying to teach them a lesson that you want to follow me, not the tall one. And here's, a, here's the best one, number five. Isn't that, isn't that hilarious? Anybody watch Invader Zim growing up, right? The tallest, that was how the aliens picked their, their king was whoever was tallest got to be king. It's the same thing in the Bible. But I'm not getting off track. Number five, here's the fifth reason. Revival and awakening. Sometimes God raises up a good or a bad ruler in order to rouse the righteous. Sometimes he picks somebody so bad, the people have no choice but to get on their knees and call out to the Lord for help. And sometimes God raises up somebody who is so good, he's going to tell the whole nation, this is where we're going and you're coming with me. That's Josiah, 1 Kings 13, right? We're not not just going to stop using the high places, we're going to desecrate and defile the high places so that nobody can ever use them again. The point is that there are any number of reasons why God could raise up a ruler or a nation, and you should not presume to know what it is. You should not assume that the goal with God is always to be happy and healthy. That's not always the reason. The Bible tells us that God raised up enemies for the land of Israel so that the young men could know how to fight wars. I'm trying to complicate this for you a little bit so that when you see somebody you don't agree with, Say, how could this ever happen? Something's gone wrong. You don't even know the plan. How do you know if it's gone wrong? I've been in leadership in, in many capacities, both professionally and in school and in churches. And one of the most frustrating things is when somebody who does not have access to all the information speaks very boldly and confidently about how you're doing. I can't believe you handled that situation. You should have said this to him. Why did you let him get away with that? I'm like, well, you weren't in the room and you didn't know all that information. And also, it's none of my business to share it with you. So you're going to have to trust me. That's how it goes with God. God, you're messing it up. And God goes, you don't even know what I'm doing. You don't even know what the goal is. If the goal is judgment, then I'm going to lead things towards judgment. If the goal is restoration, I'm going to bring it in that direction. Submit to the wisdom of the Lord. And I'll say this. Who was emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this? Do you know? Nero. Nero. Emperor Nero. Now, at this point of history, Nero was being, uh, had, a, had a regency. Seneca, the very wise Stoic philosopher, was, was ruling. But we all know what Nero would become. This is the guy that would burn down Rome and blame the Christians. This is the guy that would dip Christians in candle wax and light them on fire, mocking them. You are the light of the world. And he says... Submit to authority, for there is no authority except that which is from God. Now, there are some Bible teachers, as we pivot a little bit here to talk about our response, who claim now, Paul wrote this when everything was gravy, but if Paul had known what Nero was going to do, he would never have written this. If he had known the persecution that was coming, he would never have told us to submit to authority. If he had known the oppression that was going to come, he would never... Well, listen, Paul is not the only author of the book of Romans. The Holy Spirit inspired the book of Romans, did he not? Did he know what was coming? Yeah, he did. So I absolutely abominate that line of thinking that says, if they had known what we know now, they would have written it differently. That's not what scripture is. It is a standard for how we feel right now. That's probably exactly why God had him write it this way. Because he did know what was coming. It is without caveat or condition that Paul tells us, this is point number three in our logical outline, be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject. It's the same word that he uses when he tells wives, submit to your husbands. Same word, be subject. It's the same word as when he tells bondservants, submit to your masters. He tells all of us, submit, be subject to the governing authorities. And also, this is not just Paul's idea. All the other New Testament writers agreed with him. All these other New Testament writers, I might add, who gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who were killed at the hands of those authorities that God had established. Peter had to watch his wife be crucified in front of him, and then they crucified him. And he wrote in 1 Peter 2, be subject, same word, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does he mean by that, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? The assertion at the time was that Christians are troublemakers. They won't burn incense to Caesar. They won't stand behind the empire. They are talking about another king, another kingdom, the Lord of lords. They have a different gospel. And so they said, we got to watch out for these people. And that's where the first persecutions came from. So Peter tells them the way that we put all that to rest is by doing good, by showing ourselves to be good citizens. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Note that not for their sake. Don't be subject to the government for the government's sake, for the Lord's sake. Christians are to be good citizens. When people accuse Christians of being troublemakers, people that actually know us should rise up and say, you don't know what you're talking about with these Christians over here. They don't do that kind of stuff. So Paul tells us with Peter, do good and you will avoid the wrath of the authority. He says, are you afraid of the authority? Then do the right thing and you don't have to be afraid. Because they have wrath. He says, this, they, they are actually a vessel of God's wrath. Do you see that? He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But also, he says, for conscience's sake. You should have a sensitive conscience to breaking the law. It's not a good thing to do. You should say, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, for your conscience, for the Lord's sake, and for their own authority. Paul tells us to do good and you'll avoid wrath. Now, specifically, how do we do good? One of his specific points is pay your taxes. Not just your taxes. He says revenue. That word might be better translated tribute. What does that mean? If Rome has conquered your city and they're exacting tribute from you, pay it. Well, that doesn't seem right. That's God's sovereign authority at work. It's right there. What does it say? Pay all manner of civil duties. We all know what Jesus had to say about this, don't we? Mark 12, 14 through 17. They came and said to him, teacher... We know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Somebody comes up to you like that, watch out, because something's coming, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, that's a great trick question. Because if he says, you don't have to pay your taxes, they can run straight to Pontius Pilate and say, this guy's teaching you don't have to pay your taxes. But if he says, yes, you have to pay your taxes, then all the people are going to hate him because they think Jesus is there to overthrow Rome and get Pontius Pilate out of there. And so Jesus says, why put me to the test? Bring me a dollar and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this dollar? And they said, Washington's. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, render to Washington the things that are Washington's and to God the things that are God's. You felt that a little more that time, didn't you? (laughs) Those foolish Jews, they just pay your taxes. How easy. Then it comes up, pay your taxes. I don't want to pay my taxes. Now we cry out immediately, what would we say? But our taxes, they're funding abortions. They're funding sex changes. They're funding wars that I don't agree with. They're funding all manner of wickedness. They're, They're just paying the way for these people to live a fancy lifestyle. Their taxes built pagan temples. Their taxes funded the conquest of the whole world by the Roman Empire. Their taxes funded their own subjugation. And Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. The responsibility, according to the scriptures, the responsibility for what is done with that money is not yours. Let me just release you from that a little bit. You're not the one spending it. I'm, I'm giving it so I'm complicit. God doesn't see it that way. God said, I've put him in authority over you, and what he does with it is on him. We're told even to give the respect and the honor to whom it is owed. Now, this one, I've heard some really funny takes on this one. (laughs) Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. And he doesn't deserve our respect, so we don't have to give it to him. Going again back to John Adams was the last president we couldn't agree on. I don't have to respect him because he doesn't deserve it. He's not owed honor. He's not owed respect. Look at what they're doing. That is so not the point that he's making here, is it? He's saying they are owed respect and honor because of their position, which was determined by God. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight 28 said, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Even in the Old Testament, it ties those authorities together. You shall not curse a ruler of your people. So much for our chants and our jeers and our tweets and the rants that we post online about who's in charge, huh? It's ungodly. Well, I've got to say something. There are plenty of people saying something. Let them do it. Whose mind are you changing anyway? When's the last time you posted some really aggressive thing on Facebook and somebody wrote you a letter and said, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for changing my mind. I never saw it that way until you ranted and raved and posted that mean meme online. That's just the way Jesus handled things, wasn't it? He insulted people and cursed people and blasted people. Well, Jesus called Herod that fox, okay? He was Jesus. Jesus said, if you call somebody raka, which means empty head, as in, if you insult somebody, you are guilty of hellfire. How much more those that God has established on purpose. But we're so good at wriggling out from under authority. When, when God establishes that authority, we go, but I've got a million reasons why I don't have to. God goes, that's not how I see it. God, I want to partner with your plan. He goes, okay, then submit to your authorities. Throughout church history, this has been the truth. We are good, obedient servants of the king, even if it means we have to die for it. And the reason I'm speaking so strongly, maybe more strongly than I would have spoken in a different era, is this is such a politically charged age, isn't it? Everybody's mad. Everybody knows what's right. Everybody believes that the other guy is trying to destroy everything they love, which I doubt that's true. Might be a few of those, but give me a break. See how quiet it got? Everybody's like, well, I kind of think that. (laughs) You're not alone. You're not unique. You're not woke. You're not awake. You're not red-pilled for thinking that. Everybody thinks that. And we don't think that because we came up with it on our own. Here I go. But I'm just going to say this. We're, we're, We're like this because media companies have all this money invested in you staying angry. So you keep on clicking. And you buy all the prepper products. We gotta stop, we have gotta be thinking differently than everybody else, don't we? Amen. You can agree, agree, that's fine, but you don't have to have that same frothy, out of control attitude that everybody else has. And half the time, one half is yelling at this half for yelling too much, and this half is yelling at this half for yelling too much. Or oh, we're not like those crazy people. We're all opposed to violent, angry protest until it's our turn. Now it's justified. We're all exactly the same, we just vote for different colors. So let me ask you a question, though. Are there limits to this? Are there limits to obedience to the government? Let's not call them limits. Let's call them priorities. Because there are times, biblically and in history, where the church has to say no. There are times. I'm not going to pretend they're not. But this is not, well, I've reached my limit of where I have to obey you. No, no, no. It all goes back to obedience to the Lord. We obey the government because God established the government. So God is our highest authority. So when the government, the state, any human institution, your boss even, begins to usurp God's authority, then we have a right and a responsibility to say no. There are several examples of what we would call civil disobedience in the Bible. Check out Daniel chapter 3. Rakshak and Benny, you know this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were required to bow before the golden statue and worship it. Which, by the way, that, this was probably had much more to do with politics than it did religion. It wasn't, I really think I'm a god, you've got to worship me. It was, everyone bows down to my kingdom and my rule. They said, oh king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man, they said no. Daniel would do the same thing when they made prayer illegal. He went up to the window and opened it up so that everybody could see him praying. Consider Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were arrested for the second time. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They told them to stop preaching the gospel and they said, we're not stopping that. Both of these examples, check this out, explicitly constitute governmental mandates to sin. Pretty extreme examples, aren't they? It's not sin is allowed. It's you have to sin. You have to be silent about the gospel. You have to worship the golden image. You have to stop praying. And they were refused. That's the line we don't cross. Commandments to sin are not to be obeyed, specifically to worship false gods. Consider the midwives from Exodus chapter one, where Pharaoh told them, hey, too many Hebrews are being born. The uh, next time babies are born, I want you just to kill the boys. And they uh, said, no, we're not doing that. But they did it quietly. They just said, oh, you know, those, those Hebrew women, they're just, they're not like your are I know you're used to these weak, frail Egyptian women that take a long time to have babies. Well, listen, our Hebrew women, they just have them so fast, we can't do anything about it. That's what they said. Go back and read it. That's, what, that's the point they're making. And then Pharaoh executed the, the law to kill the babies anyway. But they said, you do what you're going to do. We're not going to be part of it. So there are examples here. When it's a choice between God's authority and man's authority, you choose God's. That's obvious, right? I mean, that should be pretty basic. We must obey God rather than men. That's pretty obvious. But let's bring this out because we all get that one. Oh, I like, kind of like that, actually. I, if, if I feel like I'm disobeying God. I don't have to do what he says. No, hold on. You need to make that decision. If you ever come to the place where you have to say no, you have to make that with fear and trembling and prayer and fasting. Because if you are wrong, then you are violating what Paul has told us in Romans 13, and you're in sin. Saying no to God-given authority is not a good thing. It's not just over your opinions. I don't want to do this. Well, I'm sorry. It's not up to you. I don't want to go to war there. You're not the one making the decision. I don't want our taxes to fund that. You're not the one making the decision. I don't want to have to do this or that. I don't want this to be allowed. Well, if they're not mandating that you have to do it, then this doesn't apply here. It's one thing to say, I'm going to use an extreme example, that abortion is permitted. It's another thing to say, you have to have an abortion. Do you see the difference? One of those we'd absolutely say no to. And there are countries where that is exactly what's required of some people. Disagreement with public policy, even a moral public policy, is not a biblical reason to defy the government unless you are compelled to engage in the act itself. And there's a spectrum of examples that we can choose from. And I'm I'm going to do three here. And I like these because they range from very clear, this was okay, to kind of cloudy, like, oh, I don't know. Let's start with this one. Let's start with the rebellions in the Old Testament. Okay? When God raised up the judges like Samson and and men like that, Jephthah, he raised them up to overthrow the oppressive government. Okay, that was absolutely God's, God's will, wasn't it? Because God spoke to them. He appeared, and the angel of the Lord came, and he gave them divine revelation, which gave them sanction for their actions. That's, that's abundantly clear, right? Okay. But we usually are not going to have something like that. Let's look at Athanasius, one of my favorite church history figures. This is when the church and the empire had started to blend, ju- just barely started to blend And the emperor, not Constantine, he always gets the blame for this, it wasn't him. Constantine's kids made the law that you have to preach Arian doctrine, which is that Jesus was not the son of God, he was created, the Holy Spirit is not personal, all kinds of things. You have to preach this. Athanasius said no. In fact, he started preaching against that. And he was exiled five times. They kept on bringing him back, thinking he would learned his lesson, and then he'd get right back to it. He chose to hide and to write. He refused their orders, but what, notice what he didn't do. He didn't raise an army to march on Rome. Do you see the difference? So that, that's a more clear example, but even so, it's like, well, that's, that's church doctrine. That's so obvious. Here's our third example. How about Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Do you know who this guy is? Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany. He was a preacher when Hitler came to power. And what a lot of people don't know is Hitler... As the chancellor of Germany had authority over the churches of Germany, there was no separation of church and state. And he put a neo-pagan in charge of the church. What's that mean? Somebody that wanted to get back to worshiping those old German gods and get rid of Christianity. He put him in charge of the church. And they started requiring people to have a picture of Hitler in the church. And they weren't allowed to preach against the state. And they had to support all this other stuff. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer split from the German church and formed something called the Confessing Church, which is, no, we're standing on the confession. Okay, all right, that's, that's good civil disobedience. He also was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now it gets cloudy, huh? Now we say, look, if there's ever a guy that needed to be assassinated, it's this guy, right? I'm with you on that. But that is one of those things that I'm glad I wasn't there having to make that decision. Because that's a fearful step to take. David wouldn't even kill Saul Because I'm not going to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. Well, God didn't anoint Hitler. What does it say? There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, he was in sin. Oh, yeah, he was. He was exceeding his authority. Oh, yeah, he was. He needed to go. I think so, too. But when you take that step from passive resistance to active resistance, boy, you better be on your face for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. Lord, I'm about to do this. I'm not going to judge. I'm not even going to make a decision. I'm just pointing out to you. When the scripture is clear, we can't be flippant about this stuff. And we are flippant about it today. This, this, without any thought, just throw it out there. You know what? Maybe we should just dismantle the government. Excuse me? Ex- dismantle something that God has established? We all in America had to wrestle with this issue during the pandemic, didn't we? What do we do? They say we, some of these states say we have to stay closed. And some of them were very clear and obvious, like in, in Maine with uh, um, Ken Graves, his church. They said, you can open up your, uh, your rehab center as long as you don't read the Bible or sing Christian songs. Because then you cross over from uh, rehab to worship. And, that, and that's so bureaucratic, isn't it? That's hardly even evil. That's just like, you're, it's like the DMV at work kind of thing. But that's so obvious. Oh, come on. We're, you know, we're doing this. This is the whole thing we do with our rehab. But then there are some places where it gets a little more difficult. You know, you get to some places where everything's closed, including the churches. We've got to open up these churches. Well, the state says that we're to stay closed. So, well, they can't tell us what to do. Slow down. Romans 13. We were so blessed in this state. Y'all have no idea. They let us stay open almost immediately. And we were having those talks already. Like After like five weeks, we're like, how long are we going to do this? We're going to just, we just not have church? But we were able to make that determination because even if we had refused, we would have had everybody celebrating us around here culturally. Like, hey, there's a church that stands up for what's right. That's much harder when you're out in Silicon Valley. Up in Portland. I was just, I did a, a conference in Washington State. And they're, they're talking about, this was, I mean, people left our churches because of this. People were protesting us. People were going to come and burn down our church because of this. It's one thing to say, well, you just got to open the doors. Okay, well, if you knew that there was a group waiting to burn your church down if you opened up. That happened in Mississippi, remember? That church was burned down and they spray paint on the rubble. Bet you stay home now. And that was a time when I was, well, I was trying very carefully, and I hope we did a good job of this, of saying we are not going to judge anybody else in the decision they make during this time. Because I don't live in California. I don't have to live with that. I don't have to deal with the fact, oh, well, you should just go to jail. All right, that's easy to say when you don't even have to consider that. We were very, I mean, we were, we were very supportive of every church that, that began to open up. And certainly after a certain point, it became, all right, this is, this is enough's enough, right? But we have to remember that if we get into a situation like that again, this is not a light thing. If, if today's message does nothing more than slow down our thought process when it comes to matters like this, out of respect for the fact that God is sovereign, then I think we'll all have done well today. Just to slow us down a little bit. And for what it's worth, in my opinion, so this is like Paul would say, not the Lord says, but I say to you. In my opinion, I think what the Lord did, among other things during the pandemic, was to remind certain people the church is still there and they're still not going to do what you want them to do. And it's like, that, that's a useful thing. Oh, yeah, there's still, because some people, I mean, you know, if you, don't, if you don't live in a circle with Christians, you can kind of forget they exist. So wait a minute, there's still churches here? There's, still, there's a lot of them, actually. Oh, well, that's, that's something to consider. Perhaps that's what God was doing. If you disagree, that's just fine, because we don't know yet. We haven't come to the end of the story. Well, that's, that's the principles here. God we submit to God. God establishes government. Therefore, we submit to government. Now let's come to the humdinger. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. What does this say about the American Revolution? Y'all gonna have some fun in the home fellowships this week, I'm sure. Now, I'm gonna say for this, just like I said about the the last couple issues, Romans 14, 4 says, who are you to judge another man's servant? So we're not gonna be judgmental. We weren't there. And I'd say again, I, for one, I'm extremely grateful for our founding fathers, despite the fact that when I looked up my family tree, I had Moravian ancestors who refused to fight in the revolution and were put to hard labor in, in Pennsylvania because they refused to fight. And I go, <laughs> I thought maybe I was related to Patrick Henry or something like that. Nope, 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 nope. But here's the question. Did, was that right? Was that right? Now, whenever I say this, and and please, I'm very informed on this issue. I'm I'm really not speaking out of ignorance here. Because people will bring me, well, look, here's a whole long list of patriot preachers that stood up in the pulpits and called for revolution. I understand that. Just because they did it doesn't mean it was good. There are some Christians, well-meaning Christians, who if a Christian has done it before, then that must make it okay. Well, that's not how we do theology, is it? No, no, no. What does the word say? So I understand that most of the pulpits in the the nation rose up and called for war. I forget the name of that one pastor that was wearing his robe, and then he took off the robe during the service, and he was wearing a military uniform under it, and he said, Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for peace and a time for war. Now is the time for war. Okay, that happened. Was it right? Now, on the immediate face of it, you have to say no, because what was it all about? Taxation without representation. How much representation did the Hebrews have and the Romans have? None. Render to George that which is George's. In fact, taxes are one of the things specifically called out that we have to do. And that becomes a little sticky, especially for somebody like me. But then you have to look at something else. Okay, we won. And we prospered after we won. And the Bible says that raising up does not come from the east or from the west, but it only comes from the hand of the Lord. Only God can raise up nations, and our nation was raised up. So does that give sanction to what was going on? Was everything that was going on in the revolution of the hand of the Lord? At least in some measure, it would seem so. But here's how I, I would answer this question. This is the difficulty that people in 1776 had to, had to consider. This was State governments rebelling against the monarchy. This was small government authority rebelling against big governmental authority. Well, which one do you listen to? Because you're stuck. You're either going to reject your governor or you're going to reject your king. And there, in many people's thinking, it's like, I've never even seen or heard of the king, nor will I. I live over here. He lives way over there. All right. Well, Paul did tell them to submit to Caesar, though, and most of them weren't going to see Caesar either. But I think that that's that's what it boils down to, is which government are you going to submit to? Are you going to submit to the state government, which has just declared independence? Or are you going to be loyal? Are you going to be a Tory, which I know is a dirty word for us? I don't really know. And I'm going to tell you, I don't have to make that decision. Because I don't live then. I get to live 250 years later and just say, wow, praise the Lord for those people. And I do think you can look back and how many missionaries have been sent out of the United States of America... How much work has been done to bring justice to the world through the United States of America? How many Bibles have been translated and printed and sent around the world? Did God use us? He absolutely did. Does that mean that he gave sanction to what we did? Well, in a large measure, it would seem like it was. But if I was a pastor living at that time, would I have stood up with a uniform in the pulpit and told you to enlist? <sighs> I have a hard time saying that. So I'm not telling you don't celebrate tomorrow. Go celebrate tomorrow because this is the authority that God has established for us. So we can celebrate it. Be glad that you weren't the one having to make the decision. Pray that you may be worthy of whatever grace and mercy God showed us in allowing it to happen. What are far more pressing are the matters that we face today. Especially, I'll say, our attitude problems. Because we're in a unique situation. All of this about submitting to the authority, this was the empire. You didn't, you, they didn't care what you had to say. If you didn't like it, they would just kill you. We have a representative government, and we are encouraged to participate. In fact, our founding document that we're going to celebrate tomorrow is a statement of our basic principle of consent of the governed. And we say, well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, okay, but the authority that was established here was established with that in mind. For this reason, it is entirely appropriate for Christians to vote, to donate, to protest, to run for office, all of that. And I absolutely reject that idea that says Christians shouldn't be allowed to engage in the public discourse because then they're going to establish a theocracy. You hear that one all the time, don't you? Well, you, you can't push your religion on me. I'm not pushing my religion. Well, you believe that abortion is wrong, and that's your religious belief. Therefore, you shouldn't be allowed to have a say in it. Okay, that's not theocracy. That's just democracy. There's a lot of us, and these are the rules. And if we're going to be voting on opinion, I'm not going to refuse to vote on my opinion because it's a religious opinion. Every person's got to make their own decision. And how to engage. And I encourage you to engage. We as a church have made our decision in terms of activism. You can go on the website. There's a Bible study about that there. But I want to make this point. Nobody wants to submit to the government today. No one is happy with the government today. Myself included. All right. You all know me. If you've known me for a while, you know what I'm like. But the question is not whether we should commit, submit to the government. The question is, what is God up to? That's what we're asking. Not should we, but Lord, what are you doing? There's an inflation and pandemic and there's disputed elections and there's riots. God, what are you doing? That's the question. Because God does those things. Amos says disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. We looked at five different reasons why God can bring about certain national things. I hope it's revival. I hope it's waking up the churches. And that's the only hope that I can see is a revival of God's people fulfilling their God-given role. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The Bible tells us we're sojourners and exiles. We don't belong here. This is your country, yes, but it's really not. Your kingdom is in heaven. We're looking for a better country, a better city. But while you're here, Jeremiah tells us, seek the welfare of the city that's here. And Christians around the world have been placed in different cities and countries. And each is going to seek the welfare for their city and their country. And God has approved that. But we have an answer that overwhelms all of these other problems, and it's the gospel. When they ask Jesus, Jesus, we just heard this tower fell over on a bunch of people and they died. Why? What sin did they commit, Lord? Jesus says, I don't know, but here's what I will tell you. If you don't repent, it's going to happen to you too. No, I want you to speak to the issue. I am speaking to the issue. Repent and be born again. That's Luke 13, and go and read it. When God decided to change the world, he did not empower a new nation or raise up a new activist group. He created the church. And our great commission is the answer to this and every nation. What is this church doing about ex-political issue? We're doing this right here. We're coming together, we're worshiping, we're studying the word, we're fellowshipping, and we're going out and telling people about Jesus. That is God's solution. Well, it's not enough. Go back and pray if that's what you think. Really take the time to meditate and pray and think about that thought. Because I hear it all the time. Christianity's not enough. We've got to. Oh, so dangerous, brothers and sisters. Laws and alliances and governmental forms are not nearly as important as the heart of a people. Did you notice that God doesn't care if it's a democracy or a monarchy or an empire or an oligarchy or communism or anarchy? God just says, obey what I've put up. Our greatest enemy is not political or even physical, but demonic and spiritual. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. To use the terminology from Daniel, the princes that oversee the nations, the demonic, wicked princes that oversee, that's our adversary, not these people that are deceived. The enemy is cancer, not the cancer patient. Can I add this at the end here? And I know I'm, I'm, my time is up. All of these things that we've said, I can tell because I can see it in your eyes and because I had to put it together so it happened to me this week. It's challenging. And you go, but I've kind of unsettled settled in how I feel about this stuff. And you're kind of talking about things that I like or dislike in a way that I don't quite approve of. All right, but what does the word say? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple of Christ? Then this is your standard. We're good citizens. We trust that God is providentially overseeing what happens in the political sphere. You need to stop listening to the voices of people who know nothing greater than the state and their opinions on matters of religion. This is a problem where we, we're getting our opinions about how the church should engage with the state from people that aren't even part of the church. Not even a Christian. So why do I care what you think about what, a, what the role of religion in society is? You don't know. You don't know. Jesus knew and he told us. Or uh, very often we see people that are nominal Christians, but when you, they're pressed on their doctrine for like five seconds, it's like at best you're a novice in the faith and should not have authority. It doesn't matter if somebody has all manner of interesting ideas about faith and religion and government. That's not your standard or authority. And the thing is, if you're constantly watching these people on their opinions on politics and the nation and on laws and all this stuff, which is their sphere, you can get accustomed to agreeing and listening to them. And then when they step outside of their role of expertise and into the role of the faith, we start listening to that too. We need to have a very strong stay-in-your-lane mentality with people that are not from the church. Here's what I think about the gospel. I really don't care what you think about the gospel. You're not a believer. Oh, so I can't have an opinion? No! Because the things of God are spiritually discerned, and the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Cannot. Not will not, should not. Cannot. You have no need that anyone should teach you, for the Holy Spirit is your teacher, the Word says. So I don't care who your favorite political guy is. He's out of his depth when he starts talking about Jesus. I'll go ahead and name names. Jordan Peterson is not a Christian. Stop listening to his opinions on religious matters. I'm saying this especially to these young fellas. He is wrecking the faith of so many of our kids. Well, he's political, he's conservative, he's, he agrees with... He doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Neither I pick your guy. Ben Shapiro is not a Christian. Tucker Carlson is, I don't know what the heck he is, but he's not talking about doctrine. Go to the other side. Ibram Kendi is not a Christian. Cornel West is not a Christian. They can use the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter. I don't care what you have to say about this. God has established authority in his church for his people. So stop getting, and the reason I speak so strongly is because whenever I say this, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to have to field two two or three days of questions from people that are not their questions. They're ideas they got from somebody else that did not get them from this book, and I have to do all this undoing and unpacking. So I'm telling you, Scripture first. And if it's, and Scripture only, isn't that our role anyway? Sola Scriptura? Well, Christians have got to do more than they did. And who are you to say that? The gospel's not enough. I beg your pardon? Never mind the fact that the church has been the only one that has ever made any significant moral or social advance anyway. Yeah, I'll say that. I'll go ahead and say that. We've got to do this. And I say this, I'm talking about these political, social, governmental issues because that's what Paul's jumping on. Submit to the authority, which is not something anybody wants to hear. But it's what the word says. And it reminds us of the greater principle that it doesn't matter what anyone else has to say if it's not based on Scripture. Well, he uses the Bible. Okay, is he filled with the Holy Spirit? Because if he's not, he is incapable of properly interpreting Scripture. So this Independence Day, be grateful for your prosperous, peaceful nation that you live in. I know we're at each other's throats, but I mean, historically, we're doing great. But pray that God will use these days, these trying times, to awaken the people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people who are so afraid and scared and worried and depressed and anxious, Jesus is the answer for all of that. He is the supreme and only potentate. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. His kingdom will expand until it covers the whole world, Daniel said. And in his name, we're going to continue on. He's going to establish his perfect kingdom on a glorious day that we don't know when it's coming. And then, as Isaiah prophesied, the government will be upon his crucified shoulders. So we say, as he taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.